Hey there, welcome and welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast. At the end of the end of history, I'm Alex Hokuli, I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Alpha Bunga Bunga is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, both of whom are in the UK. Hello, guys. Hey, what's up? Looking forward to this one. Yeah, no, it should be good. It should be good. So um, I'll introduce the guests who uh, aren't on the line just yet, but we have Michael Tracy and Angela Nagel on. Angela has been on a couple of times before. I'm sure listeners will be familiar with her. Uh, Michael Tracy is a journalist. It'll be his first time. Really excited to be talking to him. We're going to be talking about their article in American Affairs, which is a uh, really excellent piece examining Bernie's defeat, Bernie's failure, indeed. Uh, it's quite forensic piece going through a fair bit of data and offering some arguments about why they think Bernie was defeated. No, it is. It is a. Um, I think it is a remarkable piece in some ways because it doesn't pull its punches and it is very compelling. And I mean, I was, um, as listeners of the podcast will know, I was never particularly sympathetic to Bernie and was didn't think he would win. Um, but even I was surprised by some of the data that they show regarding the Biden campaign and also some of the flaws of the Bernie campaign that I wasn't hitherto aware of. I think it's particularly useful because it does take some of the arguments that have been offered up, some of the explanations that have been proffered and try to, you know, to to show there's real, really strong evidence against them. Um, and that's, of course, very worthwhile. I mean, I was a little bit more enthusiastic about Bernie than than Phil was, but even so, I was a little bit struck by some of the data they present in the article about the degree to which there was higher turnout, and even so, Bernie wasn't able to capitalize on it. And we're going to discuss all of that uh, with the authors in just a second. We want to connect this back to earlier episodes that we've done on the US and on US politics. We don't tend to discuss the ins and outs of US politics on a regular basis. Uh, what we have been doing is some occasional check-ins called Mr. Bunga Goes to Washington. And this is one of those. Uh, we'd also like to connect this to an ongoing discussion we've had on Alpha Bunga Bunga over the course of the past six months or so about the global or at least European and North American defeat of left populism. And this is uh, of a piece with that in trying to unpick what happened to this wave of left activism over the past five years. So just before we call them up, got to do the usual customary announcements. If you don't follow us, we're at BungaCast on Twitter, Facebook, and everywhere else. And if you like what we do, please consider giving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Okay, let's call up Angela and Michael right now. Michael and Angela, uh, come in whoever wants to. You firstly show that Bernie wasn't defeated by a superior force, but rather he actually did worse than uh, in 2016. That Fundamentally, the Bernie proposition was to draw in new or lapsed voters, but in 2020, this clearly failed. So, could you talk us through some examples of this? Because some of the number crunching you do is really interesting, and some of the and I hadn't encountered some of it before. Yeah, I'll I'll start off. Um, over and over again, Bernie himself and the people in his orbit and movement, so to say, expounded the logic that. In order for him to be be victorious, you'd have to mobilize extraordinary new segments of voters. You'd have to expand the electorate. And one of the ironies of this 2020 primary cycle is that the electorate did expand. At least pre-coronavirus, you had primaries where huge amounts of Democratic primary voters turned out. Uh, to a far greater extent than 2016, and even in some cases surpassing 2008 levels, 
which was the uh, you know vaunted Hillary Obama contest, which at that time was the high watermark for Democratic primary participation. So there were a lot of new voters turning out. The problem was that they didn't turn out at least in high enough proportion to mm. support Bernie Sanders. And one of the most telling, I think, illustrations of that is this gets a little bit in into the weeds, but you know, if you'll bear with me for a second, in 2016 there were still a lot of caucuses, states that held caucuses in lieu of primaries, and caucuses are party-run affairs where you have to show up in person. They're often somewhat confusing procedurally, um, but a lot of the states did still hold those in in 2016, and for the most part do uh, to an extent be, to the demands of the Bernie activists, um, many states converted away from caucuses to primaries in the interim between 2016 and 2020. And caucuses, because they're convoluted and complex, tend to have a lot lower turnout than primaries, which are administered by a state government and not by the party. Um, and in every state, that conducted a primary in 2020 that had previously conducted a, a caucus in 2016, Bernie's margins collapsed. In fact, in 2016, when you had these sort of lower turnout caucuses, Bernie did extremely well because caucuses sort of prioritize organizational capacity. Uh, you know, left-wing activists are able to go and kind of uh, sort of dictate how they unfold to an easier uh, extent. And, and that was just sort of, that's sort of one irony in that there was this kind of major mobilization in the democratic primary electorate. And yet it didn't redound to Bernie's advantage to any appreciable extent, even in the States that he did win like New Hampshire yeah. in the primary, his margin, you know, was cut, I think more than in half. And that's you know partially a function of there being more candidates. But, you know, it's still New Hampshire was his neighboring state because uh, he's from you know, senator from Vermont, obviously. And there are all other kinds of advantages that would have at least suggested he might have had a, another you know, rousing, clear cut, unambiguous victory in New Hampshire. And though he won, he didn't win it, win it resoundingly. And it actually foretold problems that he would have later on the primary because of especially and this is what we discuss in some detail in the piece to the because of the dissipation of his rural support, um, which was actually a major factor in his uh, 2016 relative success. I mean, he was wrongly depicted in 2016 in the media, I, I think, as a sort of liberal insurgent candidate, of which there are often one or two in every primary cycle. Yeah. But he wasn't Sorry, that. Just, just, just to jump in here, is, is, this what, is this what was expected? I mean, I guess it, it as, as you explain in the article, it seems... Uh, it seems very, very clear that the shift away from caucuses, um, there's a clear link between that and the collapse of Bernie's support. But is that what is that what was expected um, between sort of the transition between 2016 and 2020? Or did it take everyone by surprise? I mean, it ought to have been expected because in 2016, it was clear that he overperformed in caucus states, even in relation to Hillary Clinton. Um, and again, that's in part because of his very activated organization, uh, which had sprung into a nationwide apparatus. Um, 
but that organizational prowess wasn't maximized in its utility uh, in states that didn't hold caucuses, which are like organizational party affairs. Um, so, I mean, it should have been clear, but again, and one of these sort of bizarre ironies is that Bernie activists who were brought into the fold by the DNC in the wake of the 2016 convention, which was very contentious, had a lot of internal dissension and acrimony. The DNC said, you know, we need to accommodate these people at least around the margins, but at least have to bring, we have to bring them into the fold. We have to show that they are valued members of our party coalition. And one of the demands that they put on the table in this ref- unity commission, you know, to kind of enact rules reforms for the following primaries, like in 2020, one of their demands was in re- in uh, relation to caucus and that incent into the caucuses and that incentivized states to switch to primaries. Um, so, so again, the, to, to, to put a finer point on this irony, it's that the Bernie supporters would have been better off if their only goal was to benefit Bernie electorally. They would have been better off agitating for these lower turnout races in direct contravention of the core logic of the Bernie campaign, <laughs> which is that yeah. we mobilize extraordinary new numbers of people, it's going to be our key to victory. And it just wasn't the case. So that was just one of the many reasons why mm. we felt like the explanations being proffered for the failure of the defeat or however you want to characterize it were just woefully uh, insufficient. Yeah. And, and, it, and, so it, se- and it, it seems that it's the, the question of turnout is really striking. I mean, if you're going to win, you know, I mean, if you're really running an insurgent candidate, a, a supposed socialist candidate, you're going to need uh, a much more substantial social base than just trying to uh, eke out a win amongst the usual uh, democratic voters who, you know, maybe identify with the establishment uh, to a much greater degree. Um, And so the failure there is pretty, pretty striking. I mean, I I know, you know, one of the uh, figures that you cite is that, you know, in 2016, he in California, he did much better in the poorest counties, uh, whereas he uh, actually did relatively poorly in those uh, in 2020, where Biden actually did better. So I mean, that's quite uh, that's quite damning, I think. Um, we might want to return to those questions a little bit later on. What I wanted to do uh, deal with now is some of the the false arguments that you that you deal with throughout the article, uh, explanations proffered by other people for why Bernie lost, which you guys don't accept. So maybe we could just go through them. Uh, the first one is media bias. Uh, the fact that the left vote was split between uh, Warren and Bernie, uh, that the DNC establishment basically uh, rat-fucked his campaign chances, uh, that Bernie was too nice, uh, and then finally that Biden was too strong. Uh, So those are the main kind of arguments proffered. Can you explain to us, uh, Angela or uh, Michael, what you think, uh, what was the problem with these arguments? Yeah, I can say a few words about that. Um, It seemed like, you know, after, after the results, I was kind of waiting for somebody to... Uh, you know, I thought like now will be the time when some honest analysis comes out. Maybe people were holding their tongue during, you know, when he was running, not not being too critical. Uh, but then I realized that, that was absolutely not going to happen, and that they 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 were just going to offer these um, explanations that mm-hmm. that the only conclusion you could draw from any of them is that basically everything we're doing is right. 
Um, we don't have to change anything. It's yeah. just that we're, we're such a threat to the establishment that they had to to shut us down. Arguments um, which would apply at any point in time, presumably. You know, the bourgeoisie was too strong. You know, that's uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, you see much more radical candidates now. I know, obviously, America is a little different because it's such a you know geopolitically important uh, country and everything. But you see much more radical. Um, uh, social democratic, um, uh, you know, programs getting through and they, and they have even, you know, in the past. So it's not like there's some kind of, um, natural law that this can't be done. Um, but also the, the important reason to debunk them was just that, like, it's obvious that they're not, that they're evasive, you know, um, and that they, they are designed to make sure that nobody has to ask any difficult questions, um, about the bigger picture, which is that, uh, as you know, you guys have been talking about, um, that the working class is moving away from the centre-left parties, um, that there is a urban peripheral divide opening up, um, that there's an educational divide opening up, uh, and you know, the, the, the centre-left parties all over the developed world really um, are finding that more educated and more urban people are moving to those parties and that they're losing, um, you know, the Rust Belt and they're losing a lot of working class votes. So, but, you know, to, to think about like, that's obviously a very, it should be a very embarrassing thing, right. For, for, um, for the left. Um, yeah. and that's the thing yeah. that really needs to be thought through. And all of the answers that were given were designed to basically ensure that we would never actually try to get to the bottom of, these seemingly contradictory things. Um, the other big kind of glaring contradiction was, or seeming contradiction was the fact that uh, he actually did have that kind of cross aisle appeal in 2016. Um, and he, he did, he was able to um, get a lot of votes across the lines of like when, how people poll in terms of moderate liberal, liberal or conservative, he was able to get rural votes um, and, and so on. And this time around, uh, uh, as we mentioned, um, you know, the, he got like the Biden got a lot more of the votes of people who have like a high school education or, or lower. The people are in that category. Um, so, again, it's kind of the same thing. And we haven't even got to the main event yet. You know, this is just the primary results. So uh, that could be even more stark kind of as um, as it goes forward. So we wanted to like debunk some of those things so that at least if you get those dishonest things out of the way, I mean, even if people want to criticize, you know, um, some of the conclusions that we came to or some of the things we suggested, at least let's get the dishonest things out of the way that don't yeah. make any sense so that we can have the difficult conversation that needs to take place. Um, so just like the, the media bias one, for example, I mean, the thing is you're always going to face like any even slightly outsider candidate or even not an outsider candidate is going to face a lot of media uh, attacks. I mean, for example, like even, you know, as we said, like Biden was not like glorified every day in the media. That's totally outrageous. And it's a rewriting of history as well because it just didn't happen. Yeah. Go on. I was just going to say, and, and, and part of why these contradictions are sort of glaring to us, I think it's because if you were immersed or even tangentially following the 
chatter around the primary within what I guess you would call like Bernie world. There was a overriding sense of triumphalism. It's like they were pre-celebrating yeah. his victory months ago. And then, and, and, you know, granted, I'm talking about, generally speaking, online media, but, you know, online media, they have an influence. I mean, they're plugged into the media e- ecosystem writ large. The legacy or traditional media takes cues from them. Um, they're a force. And they were almost uh, braggadocious in terms of <laughs> Bernie's yeah. seeming inevitable victory for, for quite a while, in part because of the results of the first three states. Um, and then, you know, within a, the span of like a month or two, you get these kind of post hoc rationalizations for people who are, are now trying to suggest that there's that there was this fatalism that they were resigned to as if, you know, these vast structural forces never would have allowed Bernie to win in the first place. And how dare you even suggest that, like, he had a reasonable chance. And so, like, sort of why we led with the question, like, do you think Bernie Sanders himself would have bothered running for president at age 78 with, like, heart problems? if you didn't feel that there was a reasonable chance of win, win him winning, winning the nomination. So yeah, in, no, in I a think... sense that, 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 that excuse making contradicts Bernie's own thinking and not that Bernie is infallible, but I think his, his thinking was on the mark. And so if it didn't bear fruit in the way that was anticipated, then it's obligatory, I think to, to actually take a serious look why instead of just, lazily blaming the media, lazily blaming Absolutely. the DNC. I mean, nobody denies that these, what we would, what I, I, I have come to be called, come to call extrinsic factors. So as opposed to intrinsic factors, meaning factors outside the direct control of the campaign or the movement or the candidate, nobody really denies that those, those have an effect. The point is that it can, it, some, it seems to cause this lapse into just self exculpating excuse making. Yeah. Uh, so tell the, us, you mentioned the DNC establishment, so tell us why you think that argument didn't work for explaining Bernie's failure. Um, well, when you say DNC establishment, you got to kind of clarify your terms here. I, I often see that in online discussions, in particular of the DNC, DNC is just a stand-in for anything associated with the Democratic establishment, which is itself a multifarious entity. Yeah. Um, Parts of which Bernie actually had a good relationship with. I mean, we we note in the piece that he was having regular, you know, cordial phone conversations with Barack Obama, and Barack Obama is not the Democratic establishment. Who is? I mean, he was the previous Democratic president for eight years. He was on very good personal terms with Joe Biden. That part, in part, explains why he decided to suspend his campaign when he did, and now he's working hand in hand with Joe Biden on various task force initiatives. Um, so if the if the Democratic establishment was that hell-bent against Bernie, how do you explain why he had such cordial relations with these people? I mean, if he was an existential threat to their livelihood, then you would ex- have maybe have a, expect a little bit more hostility. I mean, I think the, po- the point is that Bernie was a social Democrat. I mean, he spent a lot of time, one of his ambitions, it seemed, between 2016 and 2020 was sort of to mainstream yeah. his conception of democratic socialism to tie it to do, for example, Franklin Roosevelt, yeah. uh, to situate it within the democratic party. Right. So it wasn't seen as this alien intruding force. Yeah. 
And the other point you guys make in the article, which I found very persuasive also, was the DNC was never as hostile to Bernie as the Republicans had been to Trump in 2016. They simply, it was an entirely different um, ballpark in terms of the degree of hostility and the way in which the Republican elite united against Trump and nonetheless still failed to stop him. Um, yeah, and the, the very fact that uh, the very fact of who is in the White House contradicts the idea that you know the media dictates who gets to be president, uh, or or you know anything like that. I mean, it, the the correlation is negative, if anything, right? The more um, the more you get attacked by the establishment, the more likely you are to win. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, you know, so I, I I think that even it seemed like, and that was the narrative too, by the way, like um, before, a few months before, when everyone was very confident, they were saying, they were kind of almost saying like, Bernie is going to be the next Trump in the sense that like, if the media attacks us, that will make us more yeah. likely to win. And then yeah. that was suddenly turned around at the yeah. last minute to, you know, reversed to be interpreted exactly the opposite way that <laughs> yeah. he yeah. would have won if it weren't for uh, the media attacking him. So another argument, you guys, another, sorry, false argument. And, and also, just to, just to add something on the DNC point, in terms of, so I made a distinction between what is sort of vaguely referred to as the Democratic establishment and the DNC, which is an entity, the Democratic yeah. National Committee. And the Democratic National Committee made a lot of concessions and accommodations to the Bernie movement after 2016, which again was fraught with a lot of internal turmoil because they felt like they needed to unify the party or at least give Bernie supporters a sense that they had a home in the Democratic Party. So when I mentioned the caucus point earlier, those reforms to the caucus process were as a result of Bernie supporters forging a unity, uh, like it was actually called a unity commission with the so-called DNC establishment. Um, yeah. And, I mean, and, and, you know, and it's not as, and, and in 2016, for example, the DNC, like they hid televised debates with Hill with, on Saturday nights. Um, there were only a handful of them. You had a lot of sort of more dubious, uh, outright kind of stifling machinations to just kind of prop up Hillary Clinton. And so like that, those allegations I thought were a lot more plausible in 2016 and they were in, in 2020 because by 2020 the the dnc as like the this, this the actual entity was petrified of being seen as tipping the scales yeah. um so they actually bent over backwards <laughs> to accommodate the bernie movement so another another false argument you guys raise is the idea that bernie was too nice so that he wasn't hungry enough and brutal enough and ruthless enough to to win and you also characterize that as a false argument um can you tell us why Angela? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, as we said, you know, the idea, you know, I guess because Biden has this very senile quality, this kind of jovial but senile quality, uh, the idea of, you know, it, it's not actually true that it would be perceived well among the public to be just, um, you know, aggressively, like, berating him. Uh, we quoted... Uh, um, the, when Kamala Harris attacked him um, over, um, you know, kind of uh, attacked him for basically being an old white man, you know, um, that that was actually perceived badly uh, by people. And I remember watching it at the time and just thinking, 
I had no idea how other people would perceive it, but I remember thinking, this just seems like they're bullying an old man. <laughs> now, that may be irrational, right, because he has power and all the rest. But I know that, but, like, that is how it looked. Um, and, and it was perceived badly by black voters in particular. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's another just funny irony running through all this stuff. It's like, you know, they keep, the left keeps trying to do, keeps trying to, like, really awkwardly appeal to the various identity groups the like and you know bring together this patchwork of identity groups doing these things and they actually have exactly the opposite effect yeah um and, and know, it's been that, and it's been not, shown by surveys yeah. right that i mean there's been a, a radicalization on cultural grounds of of white liberals uh and who find themselves more extreme on these positions than the identity groups that they're seeking to speak for often um, and i don't think people have really come to terms with with what that means yeah. yeah, and also there there are sort of differences in the coalitional kind of in the, in the sensibilities of the Republican primary electorate and the Democratic primary electorate. Republicans tend to denounce and disavow their past party leaders. Like if you think of every high-profile past Republican party leader, they're all viewed as anathema now, with the exception of Trump. Like. Mitt Romney is has been exiled, who was the Republican nominee in 2012. He actually voted as a senator to impeach or to convict Trump during the impeachment trial in uh, in February. Uh, McCain, John McCain, who was the Republican nominee in 2008, uh, was like a one of the most overt enemies of Trump within the Republican Party. And then in the 2016 primaries, Trump took on he- directly the uh, the Bush dynasty uh, by, you know, brutalizing Jeb and even accusing George W. Bush of lying the country to the Iraq war. Yeah. And you just don't see anything comparable mm. on the Democratic side. I mean, Democrats tend to revere their party leaders. I mean, Barack Obama is universally beloved among Democrats. And that, you know, has a effect on Joe Biden's standing among the Democratic Party uh, voters. And the same could even be said for Hillary Clinton, despite losing in humiliating fashion. And even older kind of party style where it's like John Kerry or Al Gore or something. So it's just like, it's just, there are different tendencies within the party coalition. So this idea that if, if Bernie was just vicious toward Biden, and I don't know what, called him senile or uh, corrupt or something, that that would have had... An impact on Democratic primary voters yeah, I mean, is kind of a, a, that, a, a, a fantasy. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be tricky because although that might have played well amongst uh, the general public, he still has to win over Democrats in the primaries. Uh, we should actually deal with Biden because I think this is one of the false arguments that you try to deal with that, you know, Biden was too strong. But I actually wanted to, to poke at this a little bit because I, I, I sort of saw a contradiction in, in your article, but maybe you want to, you know, set me straight on this, um, which is that you argue that Biden was actually quite weak. I mean, I think he's obviously a, a quite weak candidate, um, but that you also point out that the sort of online activists left underestimated him were completely dismissive of his chances and that that and that that was wrong as well so i mean which, which way do you see it do you think biden was very weak or that um the online left underestimated him uh well i mean it's a, it's a little bit of both right so in terms of a former vice president who has national, who has ubiquitous name recognition, is sort of a, even a pop culture icon in a way in his own right. 
that didn't translate into Biden having as much leverage as you might expect within this primary race, as evidenced by the fact that like 28 people ran. And so he couldn't clear the field in the way that Hillary Clinton did in 2016, which actually created something of an opening for, for Bernie to act as her foil. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like a so-called establishment incumbent type figure, that's not, it's, it's an error to say that that made Biden this inevitability because you had other establishment quote unquote aligned candidates who ran as well, sensing his Mm -hmm. potential weakness. Yeah. Um, that didn't mean that he was, but then you also saw a fallacy in some of the online commentary that Biden was like going to implode at any moment that his brain was going to, you know, uh, cease functioning, yeah. which, it, which, which it, I mean, which it has, but like not to the point where he's like literally senile. He can still speak. Um, and so like it's I think I think both both can be true uh, simultaneously or, or in other words, they're not mutually exclusive. I don't know if Angela feels the same way. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, it's not so much that, like, you know, for example, if there had been from the beginning a, a total establishment conspiracy against Bernie, why would they run so many people? Like, so many bizarre candidates yeah, ran. they would have stitched it up, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. They would have surely found one person um, that was, you know, an establishment figure uh, kind of in the way that Biden is an establishment figure, I guess, but a stronger candidate. But I, I guess people have to vote for someone, right? <laughs> and uh, he, he's almost like the median. He's like the mm-hmm. the empty vessel into which the, the median position of the party can be poured. Mm-hmm. Well, part of the reason why I think so many candidates ran is because Biden just was never the natural candidate of the intelligentsia of the Democratic Party. Like the operative world, the pundit world, mm. the people who desperately wanted a Democratic nominee who fit their concept of what the Democratic nominee should look like in the era of Trump, mm. you know, probably ideally a woman or a person of color. Um, Biden's an old white guy who like makes questionable racial remarks. So it's like he, he was never a, a, a good fit for their their idealized vision of what the Democratic who the Democratic nominee mm. should be. And that's why you had a lot of people like Nate Silver, for example, this prognosticator in chief <laughs> who said that who was like really promoting Kamala Harris very early on as the strongest candidate um, because like largely on identity grounds and, and you know what the commentariat didn't understand. And this kind of gets to the thesis that we're presenting mm. is that the, the typical voters do not place anywhere near as much of a premium on identity issues as the com- the elite commentariat does. Otherwise, yeah. you know, Biden and Bernie wouldn't have been the only two left standing, presumably. Yeah. Actually, just to, just before we move on to the, I guess the the positive thesis that you advance, um, I just wanted to ask you guys what what you think would be in some ways the most damaging of these false arguments for the American left to accept. So the media bias, the left vote was split. The DNC establishment attacked Bernie. Um, Bernie got the wrong tone. Biden was too strong. Which which one of those kind of stories do you think would be most um, self-defeating for whatever comes next? Uh, it's hard to pick, but I would say the, the one that uh, this was an inevitable failure. 
Um, I mean, we're talking about somebody who came, you know, who was extremely popular and came very close to winning in 2016. It was not inevitable at all, actually. Um, and uh, and the idea that it was an, an inevitable failure because um, there was too much institutional, you know, um, locking him out and too much institutional pressure against him um, would kind of suggest that, you know, the, we don't really need to ask any of those searching questions because mm. uh, it, it, would, it could never have happened anyway, you yeah. know, um, because then, you know, what, what, what is the point in running anyone? Yeah. yeah and, and all those all those explanations kind of fit under that rubric, right, of the inevitability or fatalism as to his chances. Like, oh, he, you know, the DNC was against him, the media was against him, et cetera. Thus, he was inevitably going to lose, which is is not true. I mean, and the 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 media one to me is especially crazy because, again, the media made concessions to the Bernie movement. They brought Bernie supporters into elite publications and put them on TV in part because of I think more accurate complaints in twenty twenty that there was just nobody sympathetic to Bernie in those uh, venues, but they, you know, they're not stupid. They could recognize a formidable political force when they see it and therefore see it as even in a sense in their commercial interest to give them something of a platform. Mm. And, 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 you know, they, they, they did. And so, you know, does that mean that there was no hostile coverage of Bernie on like MSNBC right. or something? No, of course not. But like, I think there's a tendency to get like too focused on occasional clips of like some pundit saying something ridiculous and then use that as a stand-in for your entire analysis of how the media sort of evolved in its posture toward toward bernie between 2016 and yeah. 2020 like i mean you, like every every other day it's like you could see bernie chatting it up with like jimmy fallon and cracking jokes and stuff um so i mean like he had a lot of exposure and uh you know no, no, that's that, that's right, and he was he was I think as you rightly say at the very beginning of the article in a far greater position in 2020 in terms of money, in terms of activists, in terms of name recognition, in terms of favorability, uh, that should have set him up for for a much more strong challenge than than he actually put up in the end. So. We should actually move on next to uh, that. That was just the preliminary bit. Uh, <laughs> we'll move on to the to the meat of it, which is uh, the substance of your arguments about why you think Bernie actually did fail. Um, so we're just going to go through these. Uh, the the first is that you thought that uh, you know he basically bought into Trump derangement syndrome, or what we call on this podcast, regular listeners, listeners will know, uh, neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, which uh, applies much more broadly than just uh, the, to the U.S. and Trump, but uh, it's a phenomenon across the Western world. Um, and one phenomenon of that is, is Russiagate. So, uh, I mean, I, I think we discussed on this podcast, I think I, I think it was maybe Phil who maybe said at the time when, when uh, Bernie voted uh, on the Trump impeachment process that, uh, you know, oof, you know, I think we all grimaced and thought, oof, that might be it for him, you know. Um, so, and you kind of yeah, buy into this argument. Yeah, Go on. I mean, so I was very struck by that, actually, that you guys brought up the fact that he um, participated in the Trump impeachment process. And I thought that was going to um, blow back on him significantly. It was poo-pooed by American leftists I was talking to at the time because they thought that 
it didn't really it didn't really matter so much for uh, for by um for Bernie to be seen to be participating in that process, whereas it seemed to me a genuine political um, concession to Trump derangement syndrome. And notably, it was um, Tulsi Gabbard, in fact, who um, who kind of abstained to some degree from participating in that charade of the um, of the derange of the Trump impeachment process. So um, one, so you guys say he bought into Russia Gate, which um, cost him, which didn't kind of advance any particular, didn't kind of root him in any with the working class, but also didn't win him any um, supporters among liberal centrists. But particularly more tellingly, and I thought this was very powerful, where you say that he participated in building up Trump as a fascist. And in doing so, he undermined himself because he effectively made the case by saying that Trump was this um, absolute, um, this kind of uh, existential threat to American democracy and to the American way of life and the rest of it. That necessitated a popular front, that necessitated the politics of lesser evilism, and that effectively pushed towards Biden. Is that an effect? Is that an accurate account of um, of how you think that? Uh, Bernie um, undercut himself by building up Trump as a fascist. Yeah, you know, uh, Russiagate and impeachment are kind of my hobby horses, so I'm actually curious to have Angela opine on, <laughs> on that aspect of things. Well, that's why the, I, I kind of, um, that was really your thing. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that, that whole section was really yours. Oh, um, you're, batting it, you're batting it about between the two of you now. <laughs> No, no, I, I, I do think, I mean, it's a subtle thing, but, you know, it did feel very, like, the thing is, you know, in 2016, you know, um, what was exciting about Bernie was that he really did feel like, not just anti-establishment in some kind of symbolic sense, but, you know, with these big structural changes that I was talking about, the, the, the gap between um, the educated uh, and non-educated for the periphery and the metropolitan centers, all that stuff, uh, falling along kind of center right and center left lines and, and those people leaving the center left. Bernie 2016 was kind of like the last effort to bring working class people back into um, the Democratic Party and back into kind of the center left orbit. Um, and that's kind of what expanding the vote was about as well. Um, and these kind of issues, I mean, this is just one of many that, you know, indicates that you are not just part of a kind of, you know, out of touch elite establishment and so on, but that you're kind of willing to go along with uh, stuff that you don't really believe. And I simply don't believe that if it were up to him, um, he, he would have been doing those things. Bernie in 2016, was I think the authentic Bernie, you know, um, by the time 2020 came along. I mean, I remember, for example, the uh, the video that he released when he announced he would be running again. Uh, it was just weird. It was like uh, it was like he, he was being um, held to ransom or something, you know, and he, he was kind of reading this um, very Trump derangement syndrome kind of script. You know, I remember in the video, there was like footage of him hugging a, a woman in a pussy hat and stuff. Yeah. And it's not, it's not that, you know, I think he should have been out there like bashing feminism all the time or something. Like that's the, that's the bad faith like, response that you <laughs> that, always that'd get. That'd be a, a caricature of you. So, you know, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. That that it's not that I think you know he's not a right wing candidate, so it wouldn't make sense for him to be out there like you know uh, making the case for like um, you know right wing cultural positions or whatever. The point is more that like he was signaling that he was willing to say things he didn't really believe. Um, and to read from the Trump derangement syndrome script, and to um, which, which is obviously a very bad sign um, in general in a person and in a candidate, uh, because it makes you think, well, what's the point in voting for somebody if they're not going to, you know, the whole point of Bernie was that he was um, he was meant to be a break from all of that, you know. So it's not for me. It's not. I mean. It, it was it was a bad thing to do in general, but I think it was more for me. It was more what it kind of signaled, you know. It didn't feel authentic, I guess, anymore. And um, and it also felt like, well, if he's if he's going to more or less go along with what any other candidate would do in this position, what what exactly is the point? Yeah. And on um, so I very closely covered the ins and outs of Russiagate, which is sort of a shorthand for a very wide expanse of issues under the auspices of like Russian interference and whether Trump colluded or conspired with Russia and so on and so forth. And one thing that I firmly believe is that the, the narrative was just wrong. And, but because of the contingencies of the democratic primary electorate, Bernie was kind of forced to get on board with a narrative that was just fundamentally wrong. So it's not surprising to me that that it also wasn't politically advantageous for him to have to be trumpeting this fundamentally wrong thing. Um, And, uh, and, but he, he made concessions to those who prioritize such issues and so that's sort of why we we kind of framed the article under this uh, with this notion of fusionism, because you know the Bernie Bernie himself, the Bernie movement, they were happily willing to make rhetorical and substantive concessions to, you know, kind of center center left liberals for whom Russiagate was an absolute obsession, and even still is to this day to some extent. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet, you, uh, you you mentioned one potential kind of like symbolic concession that he might make to. I don't know, the latent patriotism of like rural white working class voters. And it's, you know, a major scandal for these activist types. And it just doesn't make sense. So like, obviously, obviously I think I, I think I gets to what sort of fusionism they're willing to, to entertain. And then almost also on a practical level, I mean, we didn't get into this that much in this piece, but I actually wrote a separate piece about it. If the people, if people are interested that they can go look up at real clear politics, but there was a moment, um, at, at a crucial moment, Bernie himself got Russiagated this cycle, meaning yeah. before the, right before the Nevada caucus, the day before there were leaks from intelligence officials to the Washington post claiming that Bernie was the new beneficiary of Russian interference. They were interfering in the election mm. to help Bernie and uh, he ended up winning the caucus because, again, the, it, was, it was like the last caucus remaining. Nevada was the Nevada caucus was dominated by left wing activists. So he won that in a landslide. But then you had South Carolina in a week and South Carolina proved to be the most pivotal primary in the entire cycle. And he lost by 30 points to Biden. And that set the trajectory for the remainder of the race. Mm-hmm. And you had at this crucial moment, Bertie not having like the, the 
ability to contest this charge that he was the beneficiary of Russian interference, which was totally frivolous. I mean, you 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 notice that nobody's followed up on that ever since. Mm-hmm. Like there was there wasn't like yeah. nobody has like <laughs> you know there was no additional reporting yeah. or commentary on whether it was actually supported by Russia. It was just it was a it was a political ploy, but because he had accepted the premises underlying this narrative so long in the form of Russiagate and then sort of offshoot in, uh, in, in Ukraine impeachment, he didn't have the ability to, to contest it. He actually, again, accepted its fallacious premises. And I do actually think it had something of an uh, electoral effect because you can go find polling since 2016 where supermajorities of Democratic primary voters believe not just that Russia, quote, interfered in the 2016 election, but that they installed Trump in the White House, meaning they tampered with the voting totals and put Trump in the in the white in the Oval Office like Manchurian candidate style. And so, so the Democrats and so the, you know Bernie just he couldn't he, he he embraced that narrative part partly because of this sort of fusionistic impulse that we try to identify. And you know, what did it get him in the end? Yeah. Joe Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, you, you touched earlier on on the um, on the activist left, and I wanted to 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 pose, I guess, or, or unpack maybe one of the other arguments you you both make in in the piece, which is that Bernie was too quote unquote left, so he was too identified um, with the activist left, and this is quite. I mean, if if you want to pinpoint some of the reasons why maybe the article has has got some some expressive uh, responses um i think this could this could well be be one of them and you say that while in a vote for bernie in 2016 was a vote for bernie in 2020 it was hard to divorce the candidate from quote unquote the left that had ballooned in the intervening years um so maybe could you just um talk us through this a little bit what what do you mean when you say that bernie was too identified um, with the activist left, why why would that why would that have have potentially hurt him? Um, well, <clears throat> it's funny because as I was saying before, that there is a very very rapid rewriting of history going on, right? Where everyone suddenly acting like this is a this is a, a really strange thing to say. Uh, don't forget that it was just a few weeks ago that his senior people. Um, were were saying, were arguing publicly about whether it was appropriate to accept Joe Rogan saying something nice about him, or whether it was appropriate for him to accept uh, an invitation to be on like primetime Fox News uh, town halls. You know, um, they, they were so arrogant actually that they were kind of their attitude was like, no, this person isn't good enough for us to accept a compliment from, you know, that was kind of their, their mm. whole attitude. And they were having, you know, and, and I even remember like when some of the debates were going on, uh, like everyone was, was trying to mimic the niche uh, kind of preoccupations of, of the activists left. They, you know, and, and, uh, and the more they did that, the more unpopular they were actually. Um, and, um, uh, you know, maybe like all of them, like, you know, um, I, we use some examples in there, but like there was a time not long ago when people thought Beto O'Rourke was like the most hopeful candidate, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but anyway, I mean, the, the see, this is another funny thing about the birdie is too nice thing. Um, 
the left has this, the activist left has this perception of itself as being very nice, as being like uniquely yeah. caring. We're the good about, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uniquely caring about the poor, uniquely caring about migrants and so on. But that's not actually how they look um, to outside observers. You know, I remember like AOC screeching about, uh, um, and again, not long ago, just a few months ago, on Bernie's stage um, uh, about how it's called giving a damn. You know, <laughs> I remember seeing that and just thinking, God, he's going to lose. Like, you know, the, the, this that that is so obnoxious. You know, um, and she this- was his most high-profile endorser. I mean, they exalted her to an absurd degree. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean. You know, so they have this self-perception that is totally uh, different from how they are perceived from the outside as being actually um, uh, as being kind of uniquely nasty uh, among all the different political factions and really socially destructive and very inclined to the second they get a, a little whiff of power, they go absolutely berserk. And, you know... Um, And usually what happens is that you have a lot of people who have these really antisocial, and it's all, uh, that's the only way I can say it, antisocial kind of um, um, cultural projects. Um, And they're basically trying to link, um, they're trying to link those cultural projects as well as their own class project, uh, which is to save the, the kind of bottom end of the managerial elite, which they belong to, the more precarious bottom end of the managerial elite from falling mm. through the floor, yeah. um, which is why you had so many policies that benefited those people. Um, so I'm, I'm skipping I, I think ahead a little bit here, no, but, but, I think that, but I think it, yeah. Sorry, no, but I think I was just going to highlight that it's that aspect of self-denial, um, you know, or, or, or kind of... Um, yeah, that they don't they don't self evidently present their interests nakedly, right? So you know you might argue that you know conservatives yeah. or you know Trump supporters aren't nice either, and uh, you know can have all very various pathologies themselves, uh, which maybe people on the right can critique. We're not very interested in, in doing that here, but the the fact is that I think they more nakedly say these are our interests. You know, whatever you're not taking our guns away from us. Whereas I think the this faction of the left seems to tries to present things as uh, in a sort of impersonal uh, way, which doesn't doesn't directly speak for their own interest, but presents it as being good for everyone, but has a kind of, I guess, what you're, uh, some of what you're describing is a sort of certain narcissistic traits, which, um, which seem to grate people. Yeah, you know, and in terms of this concept of self-denial, I think one form that does take is in the online discourse that was very influential in how the Bernie campaign and movement conceived of itself i mean one of the counter arguments you'll get is the people who are on these online platforms constantly and using it as a tool of their uh, political evangelism will deny that it has any impact like those they'll say if you focus on it or if you analyze it or scrutinize it you're doing something really stupid because it has no effect on the real world so then the logical question is okay so then why are you on it all the time like why are you using this as sort of like a framing device for how you're presenting um, the uh, this this endeavor. Um, and I don't know, sorry, I just got some background noise. We all, <laughs> That's uh, all right. Mute. No, but the, um, 
I think what uh, what this brings us to, and I think probably uh, one of the arguments in the piece which has most provoked people, especially on the left, especially those people who don't see themselves as the sort of ID poll liberals, you know, um, the sort of cultural, the radical cultural liberals, but sees, see themselves as, quote unquote, class first leftists, which itself is a such a ridiculous term, like as if there could be anything else than uh, than a class first leftist. But anyway, leaving that to one side, um, it's the fact that you wrap these two up together, I think, right, that you try to make an argument that this, uh, so that the that the left, which uh, foregrounds class, as opposed to the various sundry identity groups and the various oppressions, uh, is itself also not representative of the working class. And I think that probably, um, yeah, that provoked quite a lot of people. So maybe talk us through what that argument is. Yeah, well, even if you look at, I mean, we didn't go into this in much detail, but even if you look at the policies themselves uh, and the kind of policy shifts, you know, something like um, uh, college debt relief. Like, obviously, it's a dis- it's a disaster that so many people are saddled with so much college debt. Um, now, the bigger problem there is is more is much deeper than that. I mean, there. We, you know, that there simply are too many graduates, basically, um, uh, who are who are being trained for jobs that don't exist. Um, I talked about this a little bit on Amy Therese's podcast. So if you've heard that, I might be repeating myself a little bit. But um, I've been very influenced by uh, the uh, by Peter Turchin, who's this um, uh, Russian academic who's written about intra elite conflict. Um, and I think that a re- it's very, very key to understanding um, the disconnect uh, on the left between them and the um, and the American working class, um, and sort of why it is that educated kind of elite aspirants, um, but as I said, who are still at that kind of bottom end of the more precarious part of the managerial elite, like why are they? so preoccupied with um, the idea, um, at least in theory, of making a link between themselves and the American working class. And um, I think basically the reason is that um, they're not big enough uh, as a class to um, to to make it on their own. Mm. And so they have to align themselves with a bigger group in order to fight uh, the have an intra-elite conflict with the rest of the managerial elite in order to transfer, uh, you know, public resources and and um, uh, and stuff like that to themselves. Um, so, so something like the the um, college debt relief thing. I mean, you know, obviously in an ideal world, all of these things would be wiped. Okay, but given finite resources and stuff like that. Um, something like, you know, a, a really radical, um, you know, uh, infrastructural revival of, um, you know, the industrial uh, Midwest or something like that. Like, that would be, that would be mm-hmm. to me, like a, a genuinely uh, pro-working class uh, policy. Um but, you know, the, so then you have the, the college thing, which are like two thirds of Americans don't have a college degree. So it's like no, no use to them. But even if you look at another big policy like the Green New Deal, I mean, can you imagine, for example, if Trump ran and said, I'm going to completely wipe out the entire the entirety of 
the knowledge economy as we know it. Like the, the I'm going to wipe out all of the media and academia and all of these things, which all of the left are employed in. And then, and I'm just going to replace it with something better. Don't worry about it. We'll sort out the details later. I'm going to replace it though. You know, people would go crazy, you know, it would never be accepted. So the, the vast numbers of people who work in like energy is like the, the backbone of not just the American economy, but much more than that, like American geopolitical power. So you're saying we're going to wipe out this really central part of the American economy and replace it with something else. Now, I'm not really like a green tech expert or something like that. It's not something that I'm hugely preoccupied with. But I know that there is like a very substantial uh, school of thought, which was touched on in that documentary that uh, Michael Moore produced, which is controversial for a different reason. But one of the big themes in it was this idea that um, a lot of green tech uh, is is uh, fraudulent, basically, that it's, it's not as beneficial for the environment as it's made out to be. And basically, if you think of, you know, it would be essentially like replacing one part of the capitalist class with another. So it is another type of inter-elite conflict. Um, and it, it, it would push a lot of um, those jobs into more like a high-tech um, part of the economies. So, I mean, if you think of it that way, again, like I'm not sure, I don't know if you can ask people to just trust you to completely overhaul this like very fundamental part of the economy, which would probably transfer a lot of power to, again, the more like, um, uh, like urban and tech based parts of the yeah, economy. Yeah. You know, um, and, and the trust I, I and the trust question is important, right? Because yeah. because you're asking. I mean, we know that politicians aren't trusted. So uh, the idea that the left presents itself as just being the good guys, therefore, you know, you can trust us and we will help you. I mean, that uh, unfortunately is probably not enough uh, for a lot of voters uh, to to really make that leap of faith. Um, and there's another thing which I wanted to uh, raise in relation to this is that I mean, you know, the industrialism question I think is is relevant because the left itself I don't think would as it exists now, perhaps not adopt uh, some of the policies, you know, that you mentioned, for example, massive infrastructure build out and stuff like that, um, precisely because it's, um, I mean, it has a kind of inbuilt bias against that, because in a large degree, its ranks are drawn from uh, people who are not involved in direct production. It's involved from derived from the public sector or from NGOs or from people working in material production and tech and so on. Uh, and so I, I think the kind of direct industrial production doesn't get a, doesn't really get a, find a voice through through the current uh, kind of new left. Yeah, I think there's also a tension yeah. here in a um, in a wider sense that you know in this campaign on the one hand you had the activist left in concert with their fusionistic allies in the center left and the Democratic Party, you know, they were asking Democratic primary voters to believe that Donald Trump was this world historic fascistic menace who was conspiring with the Kremlin, who was unleashing Nazis to march across American streets, and if reelected would be the downfall of civilization, essentially. And on the other hand, you're asking them to get on board with something like the Green New Deal, which would be this like radical restructuring of the entire American economy. And it's just like, so how, how do those two ideals, how are they supposed to coexist? Like, if, if your depiction of Trump is the one that you actually think is, is real, 
then why should those voters then prioritize your your Green New Deal pet project? I mean, of, of course that's going to be subordinated to what, if you're taking the, the Trump logic to its fruition, is this massive emergency that needs to be dealt with, right? So you can't bother yourself with like abolishing the energy industry. You have to get rid of the Nazi fascist menace, right? Or, but like, it just like none of this was ever really thought out or like the tensions were just ignored and now it's all been memory hold and we're told that, you know, okay, you know, we, that we, we never thought this would work to begin with. Okay. So then what were you doing? I wanted to actually take the opportunity to um, invite you guys to explain out uh, one of the final points of your argument that you make, which is, uh, which is not so much an argument for for the uh, for why Bernie lost, so much as uh, examining the landscape on the left right now, which is you know effectively the end of the uh, new left union with the old left, or uh, put in other terms, a union of cultural liberalism with uh, you know economic uh, let's say corporatist or socialist arguments. Uh, and and so you, you know you kind of are trying. I guess what you're trying to get at, but maybe this is the question: Are you trying to get at the idea that? the new left has failed and that it's that this kind of moment is over, uh, that there needs to be a, a serious realignment. Um, it's yeah, basically <laughs> it's very hard to say exactly how things will go now because of course, um, you know, the, the populist right, uh, in the form of Trump has ended up being like not really lived up to any of the things that he ran on. Um, and so it, it, it's hard to see for that reason. Like, I mean, he would easily win if he just if he if he actually did um, fulfill those things. He he would win easily. But now it's not so certain. Um, but I guess I was just like over the last few years, like try, I I found that a lot of the more interesting and I felt honest um, analysis that I was reading was coming from uh, people. Uh, who were um, kind of the people around American affairs uh, as an example, but but some others too. I mean, Tucker Carlson maybe would be the most fa- famous mainstream version of it were, you know, th- they had to at a point step back and say, you know, the, the Cold War Reaganite fusion no longer makes sense. Um, like uh, free markets and the family don't actually go together very well for, you know, and, and, um, spreading liberalism to the world through military force while uh, being against it at home doesn't really make any sense. And, and they realized that like the whole thing was just um, constructed out of these really fundamental contradictions. And um, the left is a, the left is also a relic of the Cold War. What we what we are referring to when we say the left is also a relic of the Cold War. And it also has inherited these out-of-date contradictions. The difference is that the other side are actually willing to come to terms with those contradictions. And they've spent the last four years, by the way, really thinking deeply about them. Not all of them, obviously, but some um, have done that. And they, they've really come to terms with that. And and even though, you know, um, Trump has not been the... Um, the candidate to to kind of embody that that they thought he would be. It's also very hard to see them ever going back completely uh, to that kind of Reaganite style of politics. Yeah, um, yeah. 
because there, at a certain point when there are so many fundamental contradictions, uh, you, you have to reckon with them eventually, you know, and so it's hard to see them going back. Um, but there's absolutely no discussion about that on the left. There's the odd person here and there, the odd writer who inevitably gets immediately kicked out for saying anything. Um, and so there's just no, they have no ability to really think any of these things through. Like, um, you know, that fundamental problem that I was saying that the, the, the most progressive people are the most elite people. Um, and, uh, and so how can you be, how can you have, you know, a, a, a movement or a candidate or a party or anything else that is supposed to be representing the interests of the American working class if you um, find the actually existing American working class like totally distasteful? Um, and again, like I say, this, there, we have, like, because this is such a, it, there's a real dementing quality to the constant rewriting of history that goes on and the constant um, chameleon-like, you know, changes where, you know, you'll argue something and you'll get attacked for it and then somebody else will argue the next day to, back to you, um, you know. And so, like, the reason it's all so incoherent is because the fundamentals um, of that, like, fusion, that liberal-left fusion are incoherent. Yeah, you know, I was on a conservative podcast yesterday, and the host raised an analogy that kind of gets to this question that I think is somewhat instructive. And he was saying, you know, in the Bush era, the George W. Bush era, hawkishness or interventionism was just reflexively associated with what it meant to be a good Republican, right? Because the partisanship... Um, to be pro-Bush meant that you were pro-war. And obviously that's inherent, that doesn't make any sense. Like there's no logical, nothing that nothing logically necessitates that flowing from conservatism as such. And so it took a long time for that to be unraveled. And, you know, it doesn't, not to say that Trump is this kind of perfect non-interventionist or anything, but, you know, he is ending the war in Afghanistan as we speak. He is not, launching full-scale invasions of various countries. So there is a, has been something of a shift. And part of that was, I think, because of an arduous process of intellectual reevaluation on, on the right that the 2016 primaries in particular required, mandated, like that you couldn't have such a shock to the system of Trump winning the nomination under those circumstances and, and not, uh, have occasion to to reevaluate some fundamental uh, principles, and again, whether Trump has actually actualized those principles in his governance, I think is 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 uh, a, a separate question, and he, he hasn't in large part. But but nonetheless, the conversation, so to say, did take place, and it just seems like on the left, there's no willingness at all to really have any comparable conversation. I think in part it it stems from this online culture which really can be extremely vindictive and you know i don't want to like make it seem out that we're victims or anything because you know we're not we're generally fine or at least i'm fine speaking for myself um but you know the a lot of this discussion would have to take place in some sense on the internet right and the internet is mm. at least the left dominated online cultures are just so fundamentally inhospitable inhospitable to it 
that it really makes you extremely pessimistic with any kind of reevaluation on the order that I think would be required by this this defeat. Because remember, the, the 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 Bernie experience was a five year project. I mean, his campaigns were essentially contiguous, um, and yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. they just they, they have this chameleon like quality that Angela said, where they could just everything gets brushed under the rug with such swiftness that i mean you yeah. get it's almost you almost get whiplash yeah no and you michael i mean i remember on twitter very early on as soon as the the kind of bernie ship started to tank you were immediately calling for harsh self-criticism on the left um and sadly that isn't always uh, advice that is heeded um i think just to move this on to to kind of final couple of points really uh on on i think you know, some of the main criticisms that your article has received is that, you know, actually you're missing out the objective long-term material factors of, uh, you know, the decline of the industrial working class, lack of unionization, whatever, uh, which is all, you know, all fine. And I'm, I'm sure you would accept uh, those points. I mean, you hint to them as well. Uh, and, you know, in, the, in this discussion, you've all already hinted at them. Uh, and, and yet, of course, a lot of those people who are making those criticisms were so enthusiastic about Bernie as a real possibility that it seems to be a contradiction there. Um, but I think if, if we draw back and we take seriously that those points about the serious difficulties that the left encounters all over the world, which I think we can't deny, you know, the the creation of a so-called, you know, Brahmin left in, in Piketty's term, the fact that, as you guys have already mentioned, the left tends to be uh, much more highly educated. In fact, that's one of the big dividing lines between left and right across mes- many Western countries. Um, that's a real problem that needs to be dealt with. With that in mind, do we think that, I mean, and this is maybe really controversial, was 2016 just a blip for Bernie? You know, maybe, what do you think of that argument? You know, I think what, what one point that, um, one thing that has occurred to me is that 2016 just seemed to be kind of a blip across the board ideologically, where you had this very brief opening of new ideological opportunities um, that maybe was just historically anomalous. And so the range of what was possible politically in 2016 seemed to expand for whatever reason. And you saw this in a way with Brexit and some other developments. Um, but then by 2020, that window of opportunity seemed to drastically constrict um, or shut. <laughs> and uh, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if Angela uh, yeah, feels the same a- way. Angela, why don't you come in and then I'll bring uh, George and Phil in so we can kind of open this out and, and discuss this point. Yeah, I mean, I think, you see, part of the tragedy of it all is that... Um, I mean, if you want to offer these very, if people want to offer very broad statements about what the American voter wants, or uh, you know, I saw people, some people saying uh, Americans will never accept socialism, things like that, and 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 or or even these structural things that you're talking about, that still leaves you with what was it about Bernie in 2016 that was there that wasn't there in 2020, and one of the reasons it's worth debunking all of the, oh, it could never have been allowed because it's too radical line, um, is that uh, is that he was able to win over people uh, in 2016 that he wasn't able to win over in 2020. So it is true that, okay, you know, we don't have 
the big trade unions and there's basically no counterpower at all to um, to the kind of um, the, the professional managerial class and the capitalist class as well. Uh, but I still think that, you know, if you offer policies that would actually benefit the, the vast majority of people in, in, it's not actually that difficult to do. Like, um, I know that one of the responses, uh, the, the, the response that was in Jacobin was saying, you know, we, we need to, we need to, that basically it was suggesting that by, by responding in the way that we did, we're sort of like, um, we're asking for, we think that the left should just become conserv socially conservative or something like mm, that. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, you have to look at, the, if you look at why uh, people have the cultural attitudes they do, the class actually gives you a very good explanation for it. There are different attitudes among the highly educated and the uh, uh, high school or lower uh, category, you know. Um, there are different social values there. And there are also, for example, different attitudes to globalization. There's a very simple uh, material explanation for that, which is that um, if, uh, which is that if you, you know, live in Brooklyn, you you have a very nice experience of globalization. Um, but if you live in, you know, a, a town that has been hollowed out, that you know used to be a, a, a manufacturing town, then you don't have such a good experience of it. I mean, that's like almost a cliche to say, but it's true. It's like, you can't just say, you know, well, you know, we're not interested in the culture war after you've just waged a four year, completely mad um, and relentless culture war. Uh, you know, the, the, and the left did do that. And they cannot put, they cannot keep saying, oh, this is liberals doing this. It's not, it's the radical left doing this. And that is how it's probably viewed by the majority of people. Even if you're not, you know, um, like tuned into every fight that goes on, you know, uh, among the kind of chattering classes or whatever, anyone who's even remotely tuned into politics will have gotten some sense over the last four years that the, the, the word socialism and the socialist left is now tied in people's minds uh, to a very uh, difficult to relate to kind of manic, mm. um, very people who believe in twenty-two genders. You mean? Yeah, I mean, or just all of it. You know, it it doesn't connect to the majority of people's class interests, and it's it's entirely based upon a set of cultural values that only benefit the exact class that the the, the left is made up of. I mean, some people also, you know, would say that like. I don't want to give the impression that, you know, the, of this kind of, um, you know, no, nobody who earns above a certain amount of money can have an opinion on anything like that. That's, that's not it. Or, or indeed that, you know, the DSA should go and like wrap themselves in the American flag and run around the place. That's, that's not it. It's that like, if you actually honestly analyze how social class works in in the actually existing America of today, you have to come up against um, this awkward truth that the the left is almost entirely drawn from this very particular subset of the managerial elite, and you have to ask why that is. Um, that's where their social values come from. They are based in materialism 
uh, and they have a very good material explanation. They're 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 trying not to fall out of the middle class, and they're trying to tr do things that will transfer. Um, the, the the resources that are there uh, to themselves away from the those above them who that's like what the real class war is right it's an intra elite conflict within the managerial class yeah I would tend to agree with most of that I mean I suppose where I would um, the th I, the two points I would add so I mean I agree with you Angela about how so much of politics is essentially intra elite conflict at the moment. And also the point about the 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 fact that it's the radical left who are in fact the kind of the noxious element and are perceived to be as such by so many people, um, but who don't see themselves as the problem because they see the liberals as the problem and they don't see themselves as liberals, though they are effectively, and therefore they don't um they just don't, you know, they don't reckon with that issue. Where I would, so in answer to Alex's question about whether Bernie was a blip, I suppose it depends how you think of Bernie. If you think of him as this great eruption of um, possibility for radical um, working class politics, um, or whether you see him as part of the fragmentation of the status quo. And I would, um, I'd see it, I think, more as the latter. In some ways, I mean, I think even, you know, I mean, I'm not that vested in Bernie's victory or defeat. And I would take um, the line made by Branko Milanovic, the um, economist, where he's saying in some respects, it's a kind of a glorious um, opportunity to be young and politically interested. Because for the first time in a long time, the fragmentation of the um, of our contemporary order means that there are genuine options available, genuine intellectual possibilities to explore where the actual the stakes and the risks in exploring those options are also lower than they have been in the past. And so that gives it a very kind of freewheeling character. Um, so to my to the question of whether Bernie was a blip, I think he exemplifies fragmentation and therefore he's not a blip. Yeah, just because I, I realized I actually got uh, went off on a tangent and, and <laughs> didn't directly answer the question. Um, in terms of the blip thing, I mean... It, it, it will be, but it's completely unnecessary that it will be, you know, like, I think it will be because honestly, you know, when, when, when he was out there saying, like, not me, us, or whatever it was, I was thinking, no, that's exactly, you're the only good person on the left. <laughs> you need to just, you need to come in and just steamroll all these, like, <laughs> kids and just, like, completely ignore them and, like, do you know just be the authentic Bernie of 2016? You know, and and you need to that that's precisely the wrong thing because the 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 I mean if you look at what's left over, who's the next person going to be AOC? You know, like uh, he Bernie really yeah. was the last like um, the, the the best version of that kind of um, democratic socialists tradition. You're, for, you're uh, forgetting Gilan Omar. Angela, and because she believes in Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher is her hero. Yeah, yeah. And so he, he was the last one. and He was the most, yeah, in so many ways. I mean, that's why in 2016 I was so excited because I thought, you know, I always had this sense that, you know, I, I, I agree with, you know, so, well, so much of the left's economic um, platform, not, not all of it, obviously, given what I've said about the Green New Deal and so on. But that there's always these other problems that um, 
that in a way Bernie actually in 2016 was able to come up with a formula that uh, that worked. Um, and I can't see anyone else really being able to fill those shoes. I mean, I think that was kind of the closest we're likely to get. Yeah. And as I say, it's it's it. I think it will be a blip, but it's a totally unnecessary one because there are if 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 they would simply allow. Um, if they would simply allow kind of the, the level of self-questioning and discussion and so on that, that exists elsewhere, uh, you could actually work through a lot of these problems and come up with, you know, a, a policy platform, for example, that was genuinely objectively beneficial for the vast majority of the American working class. And I think that he would win. And, and just one other thing, I mean, you know, as I said, the, the fact of who's in the White House is proof that all of these things are wrong, okay? Because you're talking about someone who had the entire media against him, his own party against him, um, the entire conservative movement against him, um, and people liked his anti-war message, they liked his kind of economic nationalism message, and that's it's not a mystery to understand why that is, right? It's objectively sort of obvious that that why that would benefit people. So this isn't a mystery. The the, the problem is, I guess, that uh, the left is totally under under the control of um, people who have these particular class interests and these particular uh, this particular kind of set of. Um, elite cultural values that come from their position within the managerial class. And uh, it's very hard to see other than just a, a total wild card equivalent of something like Trump. But then of course, Trump didn't do what he said he would do. So who knows if that would even work. But, but the fact that he got elected on that platform is proof yeah. Um, yeah. that all of these excuses are yeah. wrong. Uh, that's right. Michael, you were going to come in. So uh, I'll let you speak. And then George was going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to add, a point of clarification because earlier on you were mentioning how one of the rebuttals, I guess, to our article has had to do with this decline in unionization, other uh, factors which led to there not being sort of this basis for a left movement. But I think it should be noted that whatever remnants of the labor movement do exist now in the U.S. were not unified behind Bernie. You know, for example, you had a major industrial union, the machinist union that voted to endorse Biden on the eve of the Michigan primary, which was crucial. I mean, if Bernie couldn't have won Michigan, which he didn't, then kind of the fundamental logic of his campaign collapsed. That's why we spent some time on yeah. Michigan in this piece. And if you think that the perception of the activist left's cultural mores had nothing to do with why the machinist union, for example, and even, you know, the Biden, Joe Biden was very much associated with the, the firefighters union as well. If you think of like the, the coach, the cultural mores and pathologies of the activist left have nothing to do with why unions such as those are alienated from your uh, movement, then I think you're, you're fairly delusional. And yeah, part of that I think owes to Biden's frankly savvy as a politician. I mean, people think of him as this, you know, half brain dead dope, but you know, he's got, I mean, he's unified the democratic party to a much greater extent than Hillary did as evidenced by his very good relationship with Bernie and the fact that they're working together. Um, and also Biden is of a sort of different cultural bent than many, uh, most of the previous democratic nominees in, in recent history. He'd be the first 
Democrat, he's going to be the first Democratic nominee in 36 years to not have graduated from an Ivy League university. Um, and I do think that had an impact on on his just ability to resonate with maybe certain factions of uh, labor movement in particular, some of these rural voters who might have otherwise perhaps been disposed to to support Bernie. I mean, it's not the be-all, end-all, and it's just one factor of, of many, but I think that is uh, uh, something worth worth noting. And But, but the, the, you know, if you're, if you're going to say that the, the, the decline of the labor movement is perfectly explanatory as to why that Bernie, uh, why Bernie didn't prevail then, I mean, is your conception of the labor movement like BuzzFeed unions and stuff? Okay, yeah, I, mean, I guess they were probably pro-Bernie, although, <laughs> al- although, like, Although Warren probably siphoned off some of them as well, so even they weren't unified. No, I mean, no, no doubt the unions have, have become also very conservative and, and bureaucratized. So, I, yeah, I, I think uh, you can't fall back on, on the existing state of the union movement uh, either, really. Um, George, uh, you were going to come in with some points. Yeah, no, I think one of the provocations that the article perhaps, perhaps raises is, is it a case that people... In general, tend to like socialist policies, but not always like socialists. I mean, in the in the British context, I think this it is quite stark that the the left um, made a really catastrophic error over Brexit, turning against democracy and essentially, you know, essentially kind of revealing that that kind of um, impulse that was maybe guiding the politics as one that wasn't about about power and about empowering the working class and about democracy and popular sovereignty and all of these sorts of things but about helping people about the politics of of charity and maybe some managerialism um kind of thrown in there as well and i guess it, i mean it's obviously very different in the american context but there's a big i think there's a big question mark you know if we we're asking the question was 2016 a blip or what what comes next as to whether the you know will the right lessons actually be learned from this from this kind of Bernie, not experiment, but I don't think many people, maybe in the in the the few years before 2016, would perhaps put have, have put a lot of money on on Bernie being quite as successful as he as he almost was in um, in 2016. So that's I guess the the I guess one of the questions that you know we we have to try and answer is what what were the real um explanations for this for this failure and i think that's why it's so useful to to kind of cast all some of those false arguments out because if the left keeps turning to the particularly i think media um bias is a really tempting one then it essentially it doesn't lead to any change in policies orientation and probably not to success either so i don't know if that really answers the question but i think that that's one thing that i was left thinking about after reading the article is is what is the sort of, you know, what is the link between the policies, which are often quite popular, and perhaps the perception of the people defending them, which might not be so um, so universally popular. Yeah, you know, you, uh, you briefly mentioned Tulsi Gabbard earlier, and she was a minor candidate this cycle who was mostly ran for the purpose of messaging, although she was the only candidate really who ever defended Bernie uh, when he was under attack. Uh, but she is somebody who had a different disposition than is predominant in left activist circles, but cu- coupled that with a thoroughgoing left policy uh, platform. And she was utterly destroyed by the activist left, demonized out the wazoo. Uh, 
Um, in part because of her, I think, rejection of some of these identity nostrums, but also because, you know, she's a military veteran and she has that that's a culture which instills some more conservative uh, cultural beliefs. And you know, so she was she uh, had a theme of like national pride. Right. She had a theme of patriotism. And that just made her so alien and anathema to the activist left that they destroyed her. Um, and, you know, is that something that are they going to reckon? Are they going to change their attitudes towards candidates or political figures who fuse those sentiments later in uh, in the future? I mean, I kind of doubt it. Um, and yet that seems to me like it would at least be the beginnings of a potentially winning formula. Uh, but I just don't think that given the present composition of the activist left is something that they would ever countenance. Yeah, I think the probably most striking thing, and this is stark not just in the US, but probably even more so in Europe, is the retreat of the left from from, from the nation, from national politics, uh, you know, both in the kind of cultural terms that you've described, but probably even more so in political terms. Um, I think maybe we should uh, wrap it up here, unless you guys have any last points you want to make. But uh, if not, uh, thank you very much, both uh, Angela and Michael, for for joining us, for having this chat. And congratulations again on the article, which I think makes uh, some very good points. And even people who disagree with it, I think, would at least recognize uh, that it's an important intervention to kind of get this discussion going. Because if the right lessons aren't learned, then it really is for for naught. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I mean, if people... uh people read it and it gives them something to think about, then I guess mission accomplished. All right, that's it from Afa Bunga Bunga for this week. We are back next week with some quite fun bonus stuff that we recorded with Angela and Michael at the end of this that'll be available only for patrons at patreon.com slash bungacast. And the week after that, we are back with guest Anna Katchin discussing culturally conservative critics of capitalism, both historical thinkers and what conservative critiques look like today, with the aim of exploring what the limits are of anti-woke politics. So very much a companion piece to this one. Catch you later. Bye-bye.